Let's pray. Father, we just sang that we want to praise your name forevermore. And even though it was in song form and it was written, it's written by someone that's not infallible in the sense that it was written in your word, but there's similar phraseology that tell us the same thing. And so, Lord, I pray that what, what we typically call worship, which is singing truths about you, what we typically call worship, the phrases that we sing, Lord, may they be declarations that we live. May we be people who, who deem you as worthy of our worship forevermore. Not just when you do things that we appreciate. Not just when you surprise us with, with blessings that we weren't expecting. But may we praise your name forevermore in moments like pandemics where our fears and anxieties, where our personalities, our introverted and extroverted personalities, where our preferences, where our desires are being thrown back and forth. Lord, may we be people that worship you and praise you then. May we be people that worship and praise you should the possibility of life as we knew it BC before COVID doesn't return. Then you are worthy of worship. May what we sang this morning extend to how we listen this morning. And Lord, I thank you for this consistent opportunity. And I ask your spirit to help me with this responsibility. May they hear a better word from your spirit than my mouth could ever preach. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in, I was joking with somebody over there. They said, we still in review? So yeah, we still reviewing. We still catching up. Many of you wouldn't remember because again, this was BC before COVID. But I taught 10 sermons from Romans 8. 10, that's a heavy chapter. You can't just breeze over Romans 8. The spirit will have a problem with that. I'm just joking, sort of. But we are still in review, so we will be not zooming in in as great detail as we would. Oh, we're on our way back to Romans 9. Some of you may remember that in, I think it was March 16th, last year, March 15th, I, we were about to start Romans 9, and I, I did a sermon called Before We Get to Romans 9, which was to remind us of God's sovereignty because Romans chapter 9 is a challenging chapter. It's one of the chapters where God will bring forth some truth about his character that will challenge the way we think about God because it says some things that we think God shouldn't do or should do differently. So what it exposes is not so much what's wrong with God, but what's wrong with our view of God. And in the chapter, Paul actually addresses specific things 
when he's bringing up some of the doctrines that are in that passage. So I decided to do a message called Before We Get to Romans 9, so we could talk about the sovereignty of God. And by sovereignty, I just mean his complete control over everything. Even the things like I can't find my keys. The things that seem incidental are actually providential. So I did that sermon in preparation for Romans 9, and then I didn't know that that was in preparation for dealing with COVID. For that was the last time we had more than 250 people in this room. The following week, we had 100, and the following week, less than 10. So we are on our way back to Romans 9. But I'm not going to do a before we get to Romans 9 sermon because I don't know what that will mean. So we're just going to jump into Romans 9 when we get there. So on the way there, we will still be reviewing themes and verses that we already heard from Romans 8. This morning, I want to do something similar to what I did last week. Last week, I opened up the sermon with a fictional but emotional sort of rendering of Jesus being on the cross. It was, it was a fictional account of what Jesus experienced and what the Father was saying to him and trying to put into some personal context for us what it was like for Jesus to, for the first and only time, experience the wrath of God. For some of you, were like, man, that affected me. It was emotional. And that was what it was intended to do. This morning, I want to read a different account that will not have the same impact, but it is just as impactful to remind us that the truths that we'll look at today came at a cost because it's easy for us to think of Jesus dying on the cross as what he was supposed to do and almost thinking that it was easy for Jesus to do it because he was also God. But it wasn't. If anyone ever thinks that it was easy for Jesus to die on the cross, tell them to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and see Jesus asking, praying to the Father, something that Jesus knew the Father can't answer. How do you pray for something you know can't be answered? Why do you pray for something you know can't be answered? Why would Jesus say six hours prior to this scene and now it is the hour that I've come? And should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, for it is for this hour I came. Father, glorify yourself. And the voice said, I have glorified myself and I will again. So six hours later, take this cup from me. Take me standing in the place of all the sins of humanity and experiencing the full wrath of God. Take this from me. It was no easy task. What's easy is for us to forget how significant it is. What's easy is for us to be so familiar with it that we're unaffected by it. So I want to, again, if possible, if possible, and again, the spirit has to do this. I'm not gifted enough of a communicator to make anyone believe anything that I say, but I trust the spirit will. 
And while what I'm about to read is not directly scripture, I hope that it stirs the affections, not as, probably not as intense as last week, but enough that you can appreciate the reality that the reason why you're singing what you're singing and why we have the luxury to pray and do these things is because of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. From a book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the, the Death of Jesus Christ, author Fleming Rutledge writes this, quoting from Isaiah 10, verses 1 and 2. The author says this, quoting Isaiah, and then expounds on this truth. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people. I'll just say this quickly. What's, what's interesting about this passage is that as soon as you read this, some people will think social justice warrior and go into all these sinful categories like these aren't biblical truths that God is speaking. This is God's word. And here what the author says about those verses, where is the outrage? It is God's own. It is the wrath of God against all that stands against his redemptive purpose. It is not an emotion. It is God's righteous activity in setting right what is wrong. It is God's intervention on behalf of those who cannot help themselves. No one could have imagined, however, that he would ultimately intervene by interposing himself. By becoming one of the poor who was deprived of his rights, by dying as one of those robbed of justice, God's son submitted to the utmost extremity of humiliation entering into total solidarity with those who are without help. He, the King of kings and Lord of lords, voluntarily underwent the mockery of the multitudes. And in the time of greatest extremity, he could do nothing to help himself. Even more astonishingly, however, he underwent helplessness and humiliation, not only for the victimized, but also for the perpetrators. This version of the Lord's double indemnity will be a major theme of this study and will be brought up throughout this book. Who would have thought that the same God who passed judgment, calling down woe upon the religious establishment, would come under his own judgment and woe? This is a shockingly immoral and unreligious idea, as we shall see over and over again. However, the crucifixion reveals God's placing himself under his own sentence. The wrath of God has lodged in God's own self. Perfect justice is wrought in the self-offering of the son who alone of all human beings was perfectly righteous. Therefore, no one, neither victim nor victimizer, can claim any exemption from judgment on one's own merits, but only on the merits of the son. End quote. The author is flushing out the, the, the practical theological realities of what we're going to talk about today. So may the reality of Jesus' sacrifice be in the backdrop of all that we hear today all that you worship, all that you agree with today. May the reality of Jesus' humiliation so that we could receive exaltation. 
May that shape the way we listen to these words of Romans 8, beginning in verse 5. We're picking up where we left off last week. Romans 8, verse 5, and I quote, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God, but does not submit to God's law, because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Now, often we tend to make passages like this very complicated. We ask questions that the passage isn't communicating. And I do that sometimes to further understand. But one of the questions that we ask is stuff like this. Well, how do I know that the spirit is in me? How do I know that? And you start to get worried and you're trying to figure it out. And, and for Paul, it was very simple. It wasn't, it wasn't complicated for Paul. For Paul, it was very simple. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you place faith in his salvation for your souls? Do you reject the law, the Mosaic law? Remember, Paul's not talking to us. He's talking to Jews and, and Gentiles back then, 2,000 years ago, and we're invited to be a part of a discussion that's not about us, but is for us so that we can apply and celebrate the truths. So we can't read this like it's talking to us and we get confused by the details. For Paul, it was simple. Do you believe in Jesus or are you trying to obey the law? If you believe in Jesus, then the spirit of Christ is in you because no one can say Jesus is Lord unless God the Father puts that in him. Jesus told Peter that when Peter confessed he was the Messiah. Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't give that to you. But the spirit did. My father makes you see that. It's not complicated for the scriptures. It's complicated to us because we don't know what it's like to live under the law versus under Christ. So for us, it's simple. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ and do you obey and live according to your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you motivated to glorify God because Christ is in you? Then that's the spirit, because let me tell you, the flesh does not want you to read, pray or do nothing for Jesus. Now, the enemy doesn't mind morality. We see a number of religions that are all moral. But he doesn't he doesn't like morality motivated because of faith in Jesus. If you have that, then the spirit is in you. So don't you don't got to question that. Don't spend a lot of time questioning that. Spend a lot of time applying what God's saying here. Now, last week, we talked about the fruits of the spirit. and We went to Galatians five. I want to reread re those verses again, because when it talks about living in the spirit, those who have their minds set on Christ, there will be demonstrable fruit like you. Listen, at some point in your life, if you're a Christian, 
There's going to be fruit. And by fruit, we mean uh, uh, patterns, habits, activity, words. There's going to be something that indicates that you really believe what you believe. There is no such thing as an introverted Christian. And by that, I don't mean Christians who are not introverted in personality. I mean, Christians where your fruit doesn't come out to anyone else but stays in you. There is no such thing as introverted Christianity. It will make itself manifest in some way, shape or form. If it does not, then it might not be manifest in you. And this is why he says, if the spirit of Christ is in you. There should be some fruit. And by that, not just results, but results because you want to honor the Lord. For apart from Jesus, these attributes, anyone can do these. Listen to Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. The law is not against such things. So these are all attributes that a lot of people can do. Many of us know people who are like, man, you ever heard seen somebody like, man, they make a good Christian. Yeah. Man, they're so nice and gentle and patient and humble. And you get convicted by a non-Christian's character. You complaining about your job. And they're like, well, you know, things happen for a reason. And you're like, die. <laughs> they, they giving you God's sovereignty and you complaining about God's sovereignty. When they say things happen for a reason, that's, that's an unbeliever who acknowledges that someone's in control, whether they know it or not. These things can happen. They can be demonstrated, but, but it is the fruit of the Spirit. It, it comes out. You know why it's of the Spirit? Because you believe in Jesus. And, you, and it comes out of you because you believe in Jesus. It doesn't come out of you because it's your personality. It doesn't come out of you because it's your disposition. It comes out of you because you believe in Jesus. That's why it's the fruit of the spirit. The proof of this is in verse 24. Look at what it says in verse 24. Here's how you know it's because of you want to honor the Lord. Look at verse 24 of Galatians 5. Look, y'all was turning back to Romans 7. Look, some of y'all was like, we're still in Galatians 5. Hold on, we'll get back to Romans in a second. That's my bad, my bad. Galatians 5. Listen to what he says. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. You see what he's saying? When you believe in Jesus, you've crucified them. In other words, what he's saying is you've died. You've, you, have, you have actively said, I am dying to giving in to the fruits of the, the, the flesh that is prior to this passage. He's saying you actively are deciding. It doesn't mean that every time you will never sin in these ways again, but they no longer have the same authority. You've died to these things. You've died to wanting to live in these ways, even if some of those ways still come up from time to time, which we know that they do. Because if we could not, if we could do them without them coming up, then we wouldn't need Jesus to die on the cross. But he said, you've crucified those desires. So when you do the fruits of the spirit are at the same time for people who have crucified the desires, who said, I'm not going to live the way I used to live. I'm not going to have the same attitudes that I used to have. I'm going to do this because I believe in Jesus. The fruit is not because it's your personality. I know a lot of nice people that are not going to make it. Because it has to be. For God, otherwise. It's, it's another mosaic law. It's another law that you got to keep perfectly. 
The mindset on the spirit will live according to the attitudes and actions. In Galatians 22, 5, 22 and 23. This is why this is why the Bible back to Romans 8. This is why he says, look, the mindset, the mindset. This is why he talks about the mind. They have their mind set on. Right in Romans 8. So for those who live according to the flesh, have their mind set on the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, have their mind set on the things of the spirit. You see, this is an important reality because having your mind set on means it's, it's something you hold. You, you form an opinion about. You, you let yourself dwell on these things. You, you keep thinking about. You fix your attention to. You have your mind set on these things. In other words, the people who are, have faith in Jesus Christ have their mind set on, at, to some degree and in some measure, honoring the Lord. Honoring the Lord. It's there. This is why the Bible says consistently throughout, renew your mind. When we get to Romans 12 in a couple of years, be transformed. Why are y'all laughing? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Right? For by testing, you will discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable. This is Romans 12. You renew your mind. You will not find in any credible translation of the Bible where it says renew your heart. Renew your emotions. You will not find a credible translation that says that. You will never. And this is the great trip up for the church, for many believers. Because we give our feelings such authority. We give our feelings authority. If I feel it, it's real. And it almost feels like it's fake to not be my authentic self. Well, the problem is our authentic selves are our sinful selves. So when you're the most authentic, you're the most sinful. We don't need to be our authentic selves. We need to be our biblical selves, our eternal selves. We're not looking for authenticity. God's looking for faithfulness. Our authentic selves often are the ones that that lead us into sinfulness. So the issue is not how do I feel and changing my feelings. The the emphasis on the Bible is your mind. Renew your mind. Have your mindset on these things. Because it's the mind that rationally and reasonably says, let's give in to this temptation. You know, if you go... Hopefully you don't have to do this. But if you go to any state or federal prison to visit someone, or if you go there, hopefully you don't. It's, not, it's, it's, it's overrated. If you go there, you will inevitably see large walls with barbed wire fence on top, and you will see towers, four to five towers spread out. And in those towers are guards with guns and multiple ammo because those guards are there to stop anyone, criminals, from climbing out. And unfortunately, they got to kill them. They will warn them twice and then will shoot. They'll shoot a warning shot and then a shot to either injure or kill. And those towers are also inside the prison. Well, our hearts at times are like the actual prison where a bunch of stuff happens in there. There are Christians in there. 
there are people doing good things, but there's also a lot of evil that happens in the prison. And your mind is, is like the guards watching, not letting things climb over the wall. And don't think for a moment that that 12-foot wall, people haven't tried it. Your mind is the guard post that is watching the wall to make sure that nothing comes out. Your mind is the guard post that is watching to make sure that thought, that attitude, and that action doesn't climb out and get free. We have to have our minds set on God. Why does he not say, change your heart? Change your affections. You know why he doesn't say that? Because God already said in the new covenant, I took care of the heart. God said, I already did that. I already changed the heart. Now it's the mind. Now you got to believe that. I've changed it. I've given you new desires. Now you need to believe that. And you need to do the work in the mind and make sure you separate which is which. Listen to what Jeremiah 31 says. Jeremiah 31 verses 30. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Here's what God says in the Old Testament, looking to what he's going to do in people in the New Testament. Here's what he says. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. So he said, this, this covenant is going to be different. It's not going to be like the one I gave Moses when I rescued the Egyptians. It's going to be a different covenant. And he says, my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this covenant I will make with those of the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Here's what he says in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, looking forward to that same new covenant. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully obey my ordinances. These are both quoted in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10 as descriptive of God's covenant with the church as well. You see, God said, I already put a new heart in you. So what does that mean? It means that everyone in this room, if you are genuinely a Christian, everyone watching, if you're genuinely a Christian, then you have a desire to obey God and a willingness to do that that comes from him. It comes from the Lord. Don't give yourself too much credit when you read and pray and when you do, when you share the gospel. That's the new heart that God has given you. That's evidence that the spirit is alive in you. Don't minimize it and think, oh, that's just, oh, just the same old, it's nothing. No, 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 no. The fact that any of us desire to read the Bible when it will often confront what we think and do is evidence of the Spirit. The fact that we will muster up the courage to tell someone to follow Jesus in a culture that hates them, knowing we may experience some form of rejection and depending on the level of influence, be canceled. 
That's from the spirit. The fact that you will resist sin and temptation when no one else is watching, but God is the spirit. See, God's already done the heart work in terms of renewing your heart. Now we got to believe that with our mind. See, faith is reasonable. Faith thinks. Faith believes. Faith protects. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the wellsprings of life. When you're born again, that phraseology, born again, is perfect. You know why God chose that phraseology, I think? Because he gave you a new heart. You can't be born without a heart, right? So God says, I'm giving you a new heart. So guess what? From God's perspective, you're born again. You're born again. And people who are born again have a new heart. And that new heart makes you want to follow Jesus' statutes and ordinances. When the mind is set on the things of the spirit, its focus is to honor the Lord. And the right mindset makes us go after the wrong actions when we fail because we care about who we live for. You know why you feel guilty when you fail? Because you care about who you live for. Now you can ignore that guilt and you can press it down to the point where you lose that guilt. You can sear your conscience. But the fact that we have a conscience is because we care who we live for. Look at verse 9 through 11 again in Romans 8. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. Now, when, let me say that when Paul said that, remember, Paul wasn't with these people. So Paul didn't say that to make people question if the spirit is in them. Paul doesn't know these folks. So when he's writing this letter, when he says, if the spirit of God lives in you, he's just being matter of fact, because it's a good chance that he's talking to people who don't have the spirit. So Paul's not trying to give people false assurance, but he's also not trying to take away Christian confidence either. He's just saying, look, if the spirit lives in you, it's not like, well, well, how do I know? That's not the intent. It was like, look, I'm not there. I don't know. You you could be standing beside somebody who thinks they're doing well and they're not. So he said, if the spirit of Christ lives in you. But in in this context, Paul is talking about also, do you agree with the law or not? Are you trying to believe in the law or what? Because if you're trying to believe in the law from Paul's perspective, the spirit of Christ isn't in you. You cannot. The law cannot save you. And we know that from Romans 7. So he says, if, if, if the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the gift, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. So in other words, you've crucified the desire. The body is dead to wanting to give in to sin, but the spirit gives you life to do things to obey God. And then he moves on. Beginning in verse 12. He says something that's an incredible statement. He says this. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all those who are led by God's spirit are God's sons. Now, listen, Romans 8 has a lot of repetition, right? It has a lot of repetition. It says things over and over, and I think God's intention for us is to make sure that we believe it. They said repetition is the father of learning, or mother of learning, if you're a feminist. It's one of them. 
Repetition is how you remember things and believe things to be true, all right? Don't at me, as they say. No, I'm kidding. I want all that smoke. I'm not afraid of none of it. This is it. I keep the wood chips. Listen, when God repeats things, it's only because for his perspective, it's important that we remember them. And he knows that we're also prone to forget them. The song prone to wander, Lord, I feel it also is prone to forget, Lord, the truths that I that I believe. And this is what God is getting at. If I were to describe in three words how to think about Christianity and what we how we obey, it's just this identity informs obedience. Identity. Some people like to thank you. I'll be Tuesday night at the Cotton Club. Identity informs obedience. Let me make sure you understand what that means. It means I am, I am accepted in Christ, so I obey him. I am accepted in Christ, so I obey him. My identity informs my obedience. This is different than I obey so that I can be accepted. That's different. There's a difference. I am accepted, so I obey. That's biblical. So you look at Exodus, right? God goes to the Jews, rescues them, saves them from Egypt, and then gives them the law. Okay, now that you're my people, this is how you live. You've been accepted by me as my people. Here's how you live. My, your identity, I've chosen you, I've accepted you, I've saved you. Your identity now informs your obedience. You obey because of your identity. I am accepted, so I obey. And that rivals the very popular, I obey so that I can be accepted. That's actually the world's theology. I mean, think about it. So I joked around and talked about cancel culture. What exactly is cancel culture for? What does it mean? Cancel culture, in essence, is... If you don't agree with us, then you're canceled by us. Whatever it is, whether it's on sexuality, whether it's on justice, whether it's on whatever it is. If you don't agree, then we're going to cancel you. It means you need to you need to you need to obey and then we'll accept you. But the Bible says, nah, I obey because I'm accepted. I'm accepted. The thief on the cross, what obedience could he do? Jesus said, I truly, <laughs> look what he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus confirmed to him in his answer that there's no obedience you can do. Because Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That meant you're going to be dying today too, just like me. So today you will be with me in paradise. There's no obedience. There's faith. Faith. Now, had he been alive, he would have. So all of us can't say, well, I didn't obey because of the thief on the cross. Nah, that's not the point I'm getting. And if you get that from here, there's another church that would love you to join it. That's not what we're getting at. And I'm saying that joking, sort of. Don't add to the scriptures. All right, y'all reacting too much now. Let me work. Verse 12, we're obligated by identity. Listen to what he says. So then, brothers and sisters, there's identity language, brothers and sisters. That's only the third time in Romans that he uses this term. Brothers and sisters, this identity language. He says, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So he's saying, listen, we are not obligated. 
to live according to the flesh because our identity informs obedience. So we're not obligated to live according to that. Now, now think about what he's saying. We're not obligated. We've talked about this live according to in the last message, right? Live according to just means when you face towards, when you live in the name of, you live in relation to. He's saying we're not obligated to live in relation to. We're not obligated to live in the name of the flesh. And by obligated, he just means submitted. We have to. When you're obligated to do something, you have to. You have to. Now think about what he's saying. Identity, brothers and sisters, he includes himself. We are not obligated to live according to the flesh. Translation, fellow believers in Jesus, we don't have to submit to our sinful desires, is what he's saying. We're not obligated to. If you, if you use the ESV and it has debtors, debtors just means to owe. Okay, so that's your translation. It says we're not debtors to the flesh. It just means we don't owe anything to the flesh. This is important because he's helping us see that though there are times that we may feel like we're obligated to give in because we've been struggling all day, or we may feel like, or we may even want to give in, we don't have to. We're not obligated to give in. You're not obligated to gossip just because you, you're offended by somebody. You're not obligated to be bitter at someone because they hurt you. You're not obligated to give in the lust just because you desire the pleasure of it. You're not obligated. You don't have to do these things. You're not obligated. You don't have to give in the fear of man just because COVID is around and you don't know if you're going to catch it. You're not obligated. You don't have to give in to any of these things. You don't have to. This is what he's saying. We're not obligated. We don't have to. This is important. You know why? Because many of us live as if sin is inevitable. We live as if sin is inevitable. And while there's some truth to that, that is not the overall tone that the Bible takes. The Bible has a different tone. Because if I just keeping, if I just keep thinking that sin is inevitable, then I'm going to feel some obligation to do it, especially when the temptation is stronger than normal. I'm going to feel an obligation. But he's saying here, if you believe in Christ, you're not obligated. You don't have to. You don't owe anything to the temptation, even if you've given in before. And that's one of the ways we get tricked. We think because we fell before that we're obligated to give in the next time we're tempted. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't owe anything to that just because you fell before. You're not obligated. The New Testament doesn't talk like that. We do. Now, I'm not, I'm not preaching holiness, sinless perfection in this life. Mm -mm. But there is a difference between living like a victor and living like a victim in Christ. There is this sense of, man, I'm, and this is why, this is why I stand by not thinking that Paul was communicating this in Romans 7, 24. Because that language will lead you to give in and feel like I can't overcome. There's no power within me. That is not true at all. 
There is power in the name of Jesus and power in those who have faith in Jesus. The New Testament doesn't talk like that. First John 2, 1. You've heard this before. One of my favorite verses. It says this. My little children. I am writing these things so that you may not sin, so that you may not. But if anyone does, if not when, but if. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, again, I'm not teaching sinless perfection in this life. I'm teaching biblical mentality in this life. Colossians 1.10, which is where we get our, uh, we actually take the increasing of the knowledge of God, our second value. Loving one another, increasing the knowledge of God. We take it directly from this verse, Colossians 1.10. Listen to what he says. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Listen to what he says. Bearing fruit in every good work. You know what Paul's saying? That believers should expect to bear fruit. Believers should expect to make progress. Believers should be thinking about growing and bearing fruit in every good work, not thinking about how, we, how sinful we are, how much we fail. Sometimes we just need to get over ourselves for real. Second Peter 1.9 says this, the person, one of my favorite verses, the person who lacks these things, the qualities that he listed in verses five through seven, he says, is so nearsighted, is so blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. So here's what he's saying. If you're not growing as a believer, it's because you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten that your past sins have been cleansed and God has given you power over these things. And you're not, it's the same thing. You're not obligated to give in to these things. If you're not making progress, he doesn't say it's because the, because the Christian life is the life of being overwhelmed and not making progress. That's not his point. The point is, if you're not growing, it's because you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten your identity. You've forgotten that you're not obligated to give in to the flesh. Now, I'm not saying that we don't fail and we don't fall. Lord knows that. That's why he came. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is our mentalities need to be a little more mature. We need to grow up a little bit in our mentality as it relates to our personal walk with the Lord and not make excuses for giving in to patterns over and over because we really just don't don't believe that we're not obligated to give in to it, especially if we benefited from it before. Just because some things feel good doesn't mean I'm obligated to do them. When I used to get high, it felt good. It wasn't like I was, but I'm not obligated to give into that. There's no fruit in that now in my life. Galatians 5.16, he says this, I say then, walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. He said, certainly not. But this is the same dude who was saying he can't get over sin in Romans 7. Certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Listen, for the purpose of cultivating humility, I've made my focus as a believer often how woefully sinful I am. Much more than how wonderfully forgiven I am as a son. The problem is who you believe you are will determine how you carry yourself. Who you believe you are will determine that. From God's perspective, we are not obligated 
We're not debtors. He didn't say we're not obligated unless the temptation is really strong. He doesn't say that. The scriptures nowhere say that. We're not obligated unless you've had a long day and you're tired. You know, I can't prove this from the scriptures. I can't prove what I'm about to say. There's no scripture that confirms this. But one of the reasons why I think Jesus fasted 40 days before he was tempted by Satan is so that he could be physically weak, because that's probably the closest that Jesus could be in his human weakness to be in our, 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 our consistent weakness. Jesus got as weak as humanly possible so that he could resist sin. That's the closest he could get to how weak we are when it comes to resisting sin. Because he's fully God and fully man, it was a little different. But he allows himself to be weakened after 40 days. And the scripture is clear. He was weak for 40 days. He didn't eat. And then Satan comes. And don't think for a moment that Jesus wasn't hungry when Satan said, turn these stones to bread. Don't think for a moment that Jesus just quickly said, man does not live on bread alone. Don't think for a moment that the smell of his mother's bread that he used to grow up on didn't cross his nose. And watching his, watching his brother take too long with the butter and Jesus having to exercise perfect patience and be like, James, pass the butter, fam. I'm serious. I'm not going to sin against you, but pass the butter, man. You know, I can, I can take it from you without you even knowing. I can just, here's a, you know. Don't think for a moment that Jesus isn't tempted to want to eat something. Don't think he's not tempted to want to eat something. But you know what Satan was doing? Satan was saying, give up your weakness. All those temptations, give up your weakness. Me and Mike Perry was talking about this before. Give up your weakness. No, it's our weakness that makes us strong. But we can't let that weakness make us obligated to do things just because the temptation is strong. Don't think for a moment Jesus wasn't hungry. And don't think for a moment that temptation, when it's too strong, can't be resisted. We're not obligated to live according to the flesh. And often when we fall, it's because we don't believe that we're not obligated. Verse 13, he says this, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if you live according to the spirit, but if you, if you, well, I got too many translations in my head. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Have you ever asked yourself, why does it tell us that we're going to die when everyone's going to die anyway? Apart from the day that Jesus comes back and Christians are still alive. Unless that happens in our lifetime, all of us are going to die. So why is he telling us if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die? Most of us are going to die anyway. Whether we live according to the flesh or we live according to the spirit, we're going to die. So why is he telling us this? Anyone? No, I'm talking this rhetorical. <laughs> well, think about it for a second. Think through the announcement that God gave Adam. We told Adam this in Genesis 2. Remember, we told Adam this. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, Adam bit the fruit and Adam lived to be 930 years old. So either that's the longest day in recorded history or something else is at play. Something else is at play here. If anything, the death sentence, the death clock began 
But that's not what it's getting at. You see, Paul is not talking about if you, you're going to die physically because most of us are going to die physically anyway. It could be that he's talking about eternally the second death. Revelation 20 tells us that those who, belong to the, to, to, who, who don't belong to the Lord, they'll be thrown in the lake of burning fire, burning sulfur, with Satan and the beast and the false prophet, and they will burn in eternity there. So, you know, in a, you know, in rap in the streets, they say, YOLO, you only live once. Well, in Christianity, you may die twice. You can die and live in the second death. It could be that's what he's talking about. But I actually think, and, that's, and I think that would be a faithful way to think about it. But I think he's talking about something more common and more insidious. I think he's speaking more practically that if you, if you, don't put to death. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. I think he's, remember, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers already. These letters aren't written to a bunch of people who don't believe in Jesus. They're written to people who already believe in Jesus, and he's instructing them on how to live for Jesus for the remainder of their lives. So when he says this, he's talking to people who already believe in Jesus, who, for the most part, as much as he can tell, as much information as he has, they're living according to the Spirit. So when he says, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die, I think he's talking about something more practical, is that you're going to die spiritually daily. We are dying spiritually when we live according to the flesh. Think about how you feel when you give in to sin, particularly some sins have more impact than others. But you just feel like, what's, the, what's one of the first things you don't do? You don't want to pray and you don't want to read. You feel condemned and you, with, you remove yourself from God. You back it on up. If, it's, if it happened the night before and you're struggling with it and you come to church, you feel awkward right, lifting your hands up. You feel like a hypocrite. You got all this stuff going on. You don't even feel like you can read and pray. You, don't, you feel awkward going to your small group, all these things. You, just, you start to distance yourself from the God of life. That's called death. And it's happened slowly and practically. And we just do it subtly. We feel like, man, we've, we've lived ourselves as obligated to the flesh, and the last thing we feel comfortable doing is going to God about it. So we start to make excuses, and all of a sudden now our personalities become more prevalent than our identities in Christ. Oh, I'm an introvert. I just don't feel like doing this or being around people or doing this. Probably you just feel guilty because you feel fake because you've given in the sin. You start to die. If you're a Christian and you live according to the flesh, you just start to die spiritually. Those desires of reading and praying and stuff that was beneficial, it just doesn't seem as fun anymore. It doesn't seem as necessary anymore. And we've all known people who have just slowly, you know, every, everyone's seen that Homer Simpson gif where he just kind of slides into the bushes. <laughs> Many of us have seen a lot of Christians just slide right out of the faith, just like that. You die spiritually, daily. Then the confidence that you had in Christ at one time, you start making excuses for why that wasn't legitimate. People remember times in your life where you seem like, man, you were doing well in the Lord, and now you're talking like you, ain't, you wasn't even genuine then. Maybe you weren't. But you die, you start to distance yourself appealing to other identities besides the one you have in Christ. Paul is, and, and the reason why I believe this to be an accurate rendition is because what Paul says is, look, 
There's a contrast. If you live by the flesh, you're going to die. But if you live by the spirit, you're going to live. There's a contrast. If I'm resisting, if I'm not living according to the flesh, but I'm living according to the spirit, then there's life. Think about that. You feel a little bit better. You feel like you want fellowship. You appreciate the Lord. You, you look forward to reading. And when you pray, it just seems genuine. You, you feel it. So it doesn't mean every single time, but, but you just have a sense. There's a different confidence. When you're a Christian and you're not just giving in a willful secret sin, and doing, there's a certain confidence that you have. Not arrogance, but a confidence of freedom. But when you don't live like that, man, all of a sudden people start just backing away. Now it becomes about your personality. Who cares if you're an introvert or extrovert? So what? Are you a believer is the question. Introverts and extroverts go to heaven and hell. What does that mean? Like those things don't matter, but we start to trust in those things. All of a sudden, fellowship becomes, well, I can't trust people because I've been burned before. And all of us, who hasn't been burned? There isn't a person alive that hasn't been sinned against and hasn't had to forgive someone. You can't be a human being without being sinned against and having having forgive people. You've been burned. Okay, join a club. So you start to die. Listen, if you start to make excuses for all the things that are just the mundane ways that you honor the Lord, then then ask yourself, what's happening here? And I bet you'll trace that it's connected to some pattern or habit of sinful thinking or actions or whatever that you just don't feel. You don't feel your authentic self. You just don't feel right even being around people. They can't relate to my struggle. Yeah, sometimes it's because they're not committing the same sins that you're doing. Sometimes it's that. We're not obligated because if we live according to the flesh, we're going to die. Not just physically. Most of us are going to die. If Jesus comes back, then none of us are going to die. That, then we can apply it that way. But most of us will probably die physically. But in Christ, we won't die the second time. And in this life, I don't want to die spiritually to, every, to all these things. Now, he says this, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He says, if by, if by the spirit, if. The very insertion of if indicates that there's a dynamic here that maybe you're trying to do this not by the Spirit. You're trying to put to death sins not by the Spirit, not with the confidence. What we would call in our own strength or in Christ, in God's strength. How do I know I'm, I'm fighting sin in my own strength versus God's strength? How do I know it's by the Spirit or not? How do I know it's by my willpower or real power? This is one of the biggest contrasts between the law and the spirit. And many of us wrestle like, man, am I, am I, is my obedience, is it by the spirit? How do you know? In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, for the most part, eight out of the Ten Commandments have a theme. Here are the Ten Commandments. Do not have other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself. 
Do not misuse the name of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not steal. All of those, except for honor your mother and father and remember the Sabbath. All of those are put-offs. All of them. Don't do this. Put that off. Don't do that. And many of those put-offs were expected to be done by people who don't have the new covenant spirit in them that God talked about in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 that we read earlier. But when the spirit comes, the language changes. When the spirit comes, if you're not trying to live according to the law, then you're already putting off those things. When the spirit, the language changes not to stop doing it, but to start doing something else. To not do this, but to now do this. The language changes when it's in the spirit. Listen to what Ephesians 4 says. But that is not how you, verse 20, but that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by sinful desires. That's the put off. To be renewed in the spirit of your affections. No, minds. And to put on the new self. The one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. It's talking about put on. There's, there's actual activity that we have to do. It's not just, I'm not going to be mad today. So I'm going to be joyful in this place. See, it's one thing to not be upset. But you know what? You know how hard it is to not be upset when you're only trying to not be upset? <laughs> you know how hard that is? The, in the New Testament, it says it's not just put off being bitter. It's put on being grateful. It's not just put off your old self. It's put this on. Do this instead. Look at look at Colossians three. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Those are all fruits of the spirit. Right. Bearing with one another in love and forgiving one another. If anyone have has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. You see all the put on language? You see, many of us spend a lot of time trying to stop doing something instead of doing something else in its place. This is, this is one of the ways that the spirit, this is what we do in the spirit. It's not just put off this, it's put on this. It's not just stop being bitter, it's put on encouragement. Put on praying for that person. It's not just stop being selfish, put on serving and giving of yourself and the opposite. It's not just put off complaining, put on gratitude and gratefulness and thanks, thankfulness. Everything you complain about, there's five things that God has given you that you that are gracious to you. Let's just say, man, I, this ain't happening. I don't have this and have that. Man, guess what, though? You actually have breath. You actually have a mind that is functioning accurately so that you can even complain about these things. In the same way that God kept the people up who were killing him, he sustained the life of the soldiers that were killing him. He sustains the life of people who were complaining about him. That's a gift from the Lord. Do you know some people can't get up without their hands shaking? Do you know some people can't get up and, and, and they have to fight to have a good, coherent thought? And we wake up every day good, maybe tired. But you wake up, you're good, you can do this, you can do that. 
How often do you just say, Lord, thank you that I can do this with my fingers and it works? You know how many people can't do this? That it takes them a lot of time to just do that with their fingers, that their mind tells them to do that? These are the things that we think are nothing, but they're everything because God sustains us enough that there is always something to thank God about. Always something to thank God about. First Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and the helmet of hope and salvation. It says put on. Put on. See, when you just stop doing things, I'm not saying you're not a believer by doing that. No, but in the Old Testament, they could do that without the spirit. There were people that stopped doing things. But in the, in the, new, in the spirit, it's, hey, put this on instead. How much time do we give to putting on the fruits of the spirit? You know why it's challenging to do that? Because to do that, it feels different than how we feel. And this is what I think we miss about obedience. Sometimes obedience and this putting on is an act of faith, not an act of feeling. It's always about faith. You all have all of us have faith. If you're a believer, you have faith that when you die, you're going to stand before God and get to go to heaven. Even though, you know, you sinned against the Lord. You have faith that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. And we have faith that people that we knew that we loved that died and they're in heaven. That same faith that you can't always see that you believe to be true sometimes has to play itself out in the attributes that God says act in. It's not always about how I feel. It's about what's real. God determines reality. My emotions often don't. There are times when I don't feel like being joyful, encouraging. There are times I don't feel like being a pastor. Don't think for a moment that I haven't received offers in the last year to do other things and I haven't thought, man, that's actually a good idea. There are times I don't feel like being whatever. You don't feel like being a Christian. You don't feel like being with there. Are, all of us have that. But then what do you do? There are times I don't feel like being gracious. I don't feel like being patient. I don't feel like being disturbed right now. I don't feel like being bothered. What do you do with that? What does put on look like then? Do I just you can't always put that stuff off. We need the spirit helps us put stuff on. Sometimes it's just too difficult to not be resentful towards a person. So I need to put on gratitude and encouragement. I need to put on thankfulness. Sometimes it's too hard to put off anxiousness or fear. So I need to put on prayer. I need to put on joy. I need to put on grace. I need to. It's just, it's just too difficult. See, if I'm obligated to the flesh, I can't put anything on. But when I'm obligated to the spirit, I'm living according to the spirit. I'm actually trying to put on the fruits of the spirit. I read this study that said this. I thought it was a joke and it was a real study. It said that a smile, it said a smile, just a smile, will change, biologically change a person's disposition. If people just smiled more, it would be easier for them to be kind. And I thought it was a joke and I was like, wow, this is a scientific study. I read the whole thing. I was like, wow, this is serious. So I said, let me try this thing. I pull up at the drive-thru, it was like, how you doing? I think I was going a little overboard. I was like, 
He's out here looking like the mask, Jim Carrey. Ha, 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 ha. That wasn't what God was talking about. But there was a sense where I was like, you know, when you smile a little bit, even when you don't feel like it and you smile, it's just something that's a little bit better about your disposition. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? It was, and I was like, wow, this is biological. And then there were some other things connected to it that were biologically, just biological realities, just smiling a little bit more. Many of us don't even do that. Be in church looking wrong, like somebody done something to you. I don't owe you nothing. Just be upset. Sometimes you just got to fix your face. What you complaining about? What don't you have? Everybody in here has food, everything that they need. We have to put on the spirit. And sometimes it's an opposition to how we feel. He says, put to death this. And this is the biblical command. Put this on. He's not talking about a switch. Like, oh, flick the light. Like, man, I'm getting tired. Of, hey, how you doing? man? How you doing? That's not what he's talking about. He's saying in faith, you make a decision to act with what you know to be true from God's word, despite how you feel at times. Now, and obviously, you don't have to always act. Sometimes it's just you start to do that. It becomes a part of who you are. It's not all, but there are moments where you got to put to death this, put this off, and put this on. But don't just think put this off, because that's the Ten Commandments. That's the law. Put on. What are you putting on in this place? That's a lot of reasons why we're stuck. Because I'm focusing on trying not to be something instead of replacing what I can be with something better. Much more could be said, and we'll pick up right here next week. Let's pray. Father, we know that we're not obligated to live according to the flesh. So I pray that you would remind us that we're not obligated. And that in your spirit, in the new covenant, in the change of heart that you've given us, help us to stop making excuses for attitudes and actions and and making it about our personalities. That doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, they're true about us in some measure, but my personality doesn't matter as it relates to who you called me to be. There's a responsibility that you've given all of us, whether our personalities match that or not, whether our, our, our natural disposition is that, it's not really the issue anymore. The issue is what is our mindset? What's on our minds? Father, remind us that we have no obligation, even though we are tempted to live in ways, and sometimes in strong temptation, we are not obligated to live according to that flesh. We're not obligated just because it's, we've benefited, we've, we've, we've experienced pleasure from it before, or it seems too strong, or we're tired, or, we, or maybe sometimes, Lord, Lord, you know that sometimes we make progress in an area and we feel justified to give in because we've been doing good in that area for a while. We just will rationalize anything. Lord, help us take our minds captive. You, you've already renewed the heart. You've given us a desire to glorify you. We don't have to be told every day to glorify you. You've given us that desire. You fulfilled that reality, that covenant that you spoke of. Lord, help us do the work in our minds to have our minds set on the things of the Spirit. 
for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, my brother, thank you for that message. And uh, you have quite a few. You have some questions for you. So let's get, let's, let's get in. Get it in. So uh, the first question that came through said, um, you, you said our authentic selves are our sinful nature. But if Jesus made us to be born again and we are now the brand new, the brand new creation, then is not the new creation our true self? Sure, it is. But I think that but Adam, the Adam in us doesn't go away. Right. So the patterns and habits that that we're having to put off is who we were. That's still a part of who we are. It's not our functional identity. What I meant by authentic self is just sort of who we how we were created and how we were. What Christ has done is that he replaces that authentic self. But we believe that by faith. But our natural disposition is not to glorify God. It's by faith that God's spirit has given us that, that now we move in that direction. But our authentic selves in terms of as being an Adam, Christ has made us something greater than just being authentic. Because authenticity is not about uh, Christianity. I mean, you can be authentic and genuine in that sense, but what God has created in us is something greater than who we were before. So what I meant by our authentic selves are just the sin nature that's in us, that was first. That's sort of who we are apart from Christ. And then once we have Christ, then we are a new self. Thank you. Uh, another question is, you mentioned I'm accepted in Christ, so I obey him. Not I obey so that I can be accepted. Is it safe to say that obeying so we can be accepted is legalism? Sure, 100%. I think that's the historic way people have thought about legalism. That's not necessarily legalism in the Bible, but it's the way people have described legalism, mm -hmm. like trying to earn God's favor. But that's actually, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to get into that. That's, I won't get into that right now. But I just say, yes, that would be his, what, what people have historically called legalism is doing things to earn God's favor. And, uh, but I, to be honest, I don't... I don't know how many people think, oh, if I do this, then God will, I'll be saved. Like, I, I think that's just a little bit convoluted. But, yeah, that's typically how people describe it. I think the, the point is that the draw to do that is, is still tangible even when you're a Christian. The draw to, to think, like, I need to obey to be accepted by the Lord is still a part of, though, it's, it's part of the fight. Because this is why we get discouraged and we move away from the Lord when we, when we sin. Often why we back away from God is because we don't feel accepted anymore. But he never once said, if you sin, you're no longer accepted by me. So where's the impulse to move away from the Lord? And by the Lord, I don't mean just him. I mean from church, fellowship, and all of that. There's a lot of things that we feel a certain condemnation or we feel fake. And the Lord never says that. He never says, he says, approach the throne of grace with confidence. He never says, if you sin, I mean, 1 John 2, 1, if you sin, you have an advocate before the Father. So I think we do still think that way, that when we don't obey, we're not accepted by the Lord. And I don't, what, there's no credible translation that you'll get that from. That doesn't mean like you, you know, and that's the whole point of Romans 6, right? So what, should we sin since grace? It was like, no, by no means. Like, no, you don't just sin because there's grace. You, you, you live because there's grace. 
But yeah, it would be legalism, but how people have described it historically. All right, so this, this next question. Four-part question? Well, there are a few questions uh, within the question, yes. Um, but it, it, <laughs> it kicks off um, some more practical questions. So uh, it, this one says, uh, how do you transition from obeying to be accepted to obeying because you are accepted? What does that process look like? Mm -hmm. they, they describe, I've tried for the longest uh, time to be consistent in reading the Bible every day versus once or twice every couple weeks. Um, going a couple days makes me feel guilty that it's hard to approach God and, f and feel like a genuine believer. And then it makes it even harder to read. How do I break this cycle? Then they ask, am I just not a genuine believer? Um, and that's why it's so hard. If so, how do I, I genuinely change? So let me make sure I understand, because I, I might be a little bit, I'm an idiot. Is, is, is the second, was the, read the second question again. The second question, uh, the qu second question was, what does the process look like from going to, um, what I, I mean, it's elaboration. Reading every day to reading. Yeah, yeah, so they described, like, you know, um, they tried to read consistently every day, but then they might go, um, they might try to read every day as opposed to reading every once every couple weeks. And when they read it once every couple weeks, is that when they struggle? Or when they, they yeah, they start to feel guilty, and then it's hard to approach God and feel like a genuine believer. Okay. Okay, all right. All right, so I would say, the, so the, the, the big question is, what's the transition like? Like, how do I move from feeling this way to that way? So I think first, uh, don't make it about how much you read and, and, and make it about how much you, like, I, like, you know what? Read less, pray more. Read less, meditate more. Read less, memorize more. Let me, let me, I, listen. Okay, so in Psalm 119, right, David talks about day and night I meditate on your law, right? There is no New, new Testament command to do that, right? That's sort of a thing that we just do because we love God, but that's sort of become measure, that like measures maturity. Right. Ah, right. Like you could read every day and not right. obey at all and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't please God at all. So, don't make, don't make, your Christianity is not measured by how much you read, you know? Now, what I'm not saying is just don't read. Like, it's kind of the Romans 6 paradigm, right? It's not like, oh, because that's not what it means to be a Christian. I should just not read. No, we read because that helps us know who God is and understand God, right? And we read, and God gives us stuff. It's not like, oh, I've read all this before. I mean, I've preached these passages a ton of times, and God gives me something fresh. So, it's not the absence of reading, but reading is not what makes you a believer. Your faith in Jesus Christ makes you a believer bar none. What I would do if I were you is I would focus on, and I'm assuming that this might not be you trying, just focus on memorizing passages that, that highlight your identity in Christ. Just, just, just I mean, if, if you don't read, but you're applying that and thinking about that and you're praying and you don't read as much, I don't think God, God's not like, man, how much did they read today? That's just not how it works. Now, don't get me wrong, because someone's going to hear what I'm not saying and think I'm saying don't read, and that's not important. That's not what I'm saying. Right. I'm saying reading is not the measure of your faithfulness and your maturity in the Lord. There are some people who, who struggle to read and struggle to concentrate. What if you got ADHD and, and sitting down to read is, is a struggle? So you, and then, and then, and because that's the case, and then when you say, well, let me just listen instead, then you're listening, your mind's wandering, right? 
So yeah, you got to do some work there, but I think there are other things that we do that also add to that. So I would say, I would pick some verses like uh, 2 Timothy 2.13. You know, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Mm-hmm. And just chew on that. Take that and say, I'm going to memorize this. I'm going to say, I'm going to pray it back to God. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean by praying scripture when you just take the look. So it says, you know, if we are faithless, Lord, there are times that I am faithless right. and I don't. You can call some of those out. Right. But you said in your word, you remain faithful. Amen. You are faithful. You can pray it back to the Lord. Do things like that and don't make it about how much you read versus how much you don't. And, and, and because you need to grow in you when, when you're when you're in that place, we need to grow in the way we our faith and how God sees us. You have to remember, like faith in Christ is not just I believe when I die, I go to heaven. I think that's been the worst thing that American evangelicalism has taught. Like that's the only faith. No, that's the beginning of faith. We also need faith to believe that Hebrews eleven six that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him, right? We need, that's genuine. We need faith that God says we are who we are. We act like all we need to do is believe in, no, we need faith for a lot of the promises that he makes. We need faith for a lot of the things that he says. It's one thing to be like, all right, when I'm saved, okay, I believe in that. But now I got to believe when I sin, that's when your faith is going to get tested. Do I believe that I'm a son? I'm a daughter still? Those are the things. So I would, I would find passages and grow. And if you, if you remember the church, ask people in your D group, like, hey, what passages do you go to to build in this way? And if you, if they, if you can't get any, then send me a text or an email and I'll give you some passages, more passages. But I think find passages that you latch on to and don't make it just about reading because you'll go through seasons, believe it or not. You're going to go through seasons where, man, you're just voracious. You're just reading a ton. You can't get enough of God's word. Then you're going to go through seasons like, man, you don't even know where you put your Bible. Because it's just, it's just, there's just different things that happen. And I'm joking a little bit. You're always going to be connected to some degree. But I think there are different seasons. And you might be in a season where, you know what, this is meditation and, and memorization season. It might not be just I'm reading every day type of thing. So, This next question um the person ends it by saying that they feel very lost. So I want to put it at the front to um, give context to the question. So they want to know, um, how, do I, how do I know if I have gifts? How do I know, how do I be a better Christian when I am surrounded by people who follow the flesh and reject Christianity? How do I know if I have the spirit? I feel very lost. Okay, a couple questions. So, I don't I don't know what you mean by lost. So I'm gonna I'm gonna assume a definition based on the questions that you're asking because I don't know what you mean by lost. Um, but being a Christian has nothing to do with the people that are around you. So let me give you an example. In Genesis, right, it said that Lot was a righteous man and was tormented in his soul by the wickedness that was in the city around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know why Lot stayed there. I'd be like, hey, kids, we moving to the next city. The city that Lot ran to, he should have just moved to, but that wasn't what happened. So anyway, so I don't know what was going on. Lot was living in the hood. I'd have moved to the suburbs if I could. But anyway, anyway, it's probably not helpful. Don't, don't at me. I came from the hood. It's okay. To some degree. Spent time there at least. We didn't come from the hood. My mom did her thing. All right. So you're going to live around a culture. Then, you, then let's, let's make it New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, right? Paul says, 
you know, do not be associated with people who are idolaters, sexually immoral, slanderers, and all that. And he says, I did not mean the world. I do not mean the world or else you would have to leave the world. He says, don't be associated with people who are Christians that profess these things. So number one, the fact that you're surrounded around unbelievers has nothing to do with your being a Christian. Now, I don't know what that means. You're imitating them and being like them. I don't know. But just off of what you asked, that has nothing to do with your Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, depending on what you mean by lost, that, that could be a fruit of the spirit. That could be evidence of the spirit's work in you, right? Because you feel a sense of like the fact that you asked a question and you feel this way is evidence that the spirit is working in you. What, you. what I think you may be saying is I am not satisfied with my life. I'm not satisfied with where I am. I feel lost. That dissatisfaction is because the spirit will not allow you. God loves you too much. He cares about us too much to allow us to be satisfied for so long. He'll let it go for a period of time, but at some point, I'm, like, I'm, tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? So that, that, is, that may be evidence of the spirit is in you, that there's a dissatisfaction with your current circumstances. Um, the question about how do I, I think it was, how do I grow in the spirit? Is that what it was? How do I understand if I have, uh, I'm sorry, how do I know if I have gifts? Gifts. So, okay. Let's talk about this for just a second. Because here's why. People have taken 1 Corinthians 12 and made it about like the gifts. And people think of the, the supernatural gifts, right, that he lists. Go back and look at 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verses 4 through 6. And it'll say something to this effect, paraphrasing that there are a variety of gifts from the same God, a variety of activities from the same God, a variety. So there's other things than just gifts, right? God gives, as a matter of fact, no, 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 no. Let me, let's, let's read this together. Because this is, this is a question that, you know, we're not there yet. I can't break away from any new series. We got to finish Romans or people are going to hurt me. So, but I, I want you to see something here in Romans 12. Now I'm reading from the CSB translation. I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 12. 1 Corinthians 12. I'm an idiot. I told you. Sue me. All right, listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 12 here. Now, there are different gifts, but the same spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God works in all of them in each person. So here you go. You got gifts, the same spirit. Ministries are the same Lord and different activities, the same God. So you got the Trinitarian right there, Trinitarian framework. Spirit, Lord, God, all there. They're gifts, ministries, activities. We tend to think of it from the, the super, these gifts, like one gets a message of wisdom and to another a knowledge by the same spirit, faith, and to another gifts of healing. And we think like, what gifts do I have? Start with what activities do I like to do? It says activities in, this, in that passage. Activities from the same God. What activities do I like to do? What ministries would I like to be a part of? Just start there, right? Start from that and see where the Lord leads you. And then if you're a member of the church, this church or a church, then see what does the church need? You see, sometimes when we think about what gifts we have, we can get discouraged. You know, Jesus told us to have a posture of the heart to serve. And serving, in Mark 10, you know, verses 42 through 45, Jesus says, look, those who are Gentiles, not Jews, they, they lord it over the people. When they have a position, 
they let people know they have a position. They'd be like your boss saying, well, you know I'm your boss, so you got to, if you ever had a boss that just reminds you that they're your boss all the time? And it's like, man. <laughs> it's like, this. He's like they, they, these people lord it over them, just constantly letting you know that you're under their authority. He said, but it shouldn't be like that among you. Let those of you who want to be uh, the greatest be the least, be servants, be humble. He was talking about a posture of the heart. Sometimes we evaluate what gifts do I have and we get discouraged. Just say, like, you know what? I'm not clear yet. I don't know what gifts I have. So what does the church need? What, how can I serve the church? What does the church need? And it might develop into a gift. People act like, and I'm not saying you asking this question. I'm just, I'm just thinking about this issue. People act like that everyone was just born and just knew what they was going to do. Like, by the time you were three, I'm going to do this and I want to do It's like, man, some of us, we just working our way. We find our way through, and then we realize, wow, I really enjoyed this. I like this. I'm, I'm going to do that. Some of us, it's, just, it's, a, it's a process. It's not a, it's not a moment where it's like, oh, I'm supposed to be, you know, it's like, ah, uh, you know what, it just might be like, you know what, I, just, I, I don't know yet, and let me ask the Lord, let me see what the church needs, and let me see what activities do I enjoy doing. Now, if you say, I don't enjoy doing nothing, I don't do, then just pray like, Lord, help me. Because now you got bigger problems. You don't enjoy doing nothing. And now we're in a, we a whole different conversation. We can talk offline. But I, I just think sometimes we, we think like gifts are not the end all be all. And sometimes it's just the process of exploration. You just might not have positioned yourself to know what those things are. And some of us don't. I bet you there's people in here that can't say, well, my gift is this. And if they can say that, it's because they figured it out. The Lord let them see over time. So sometimes start with, what does the church need? I might end up liking something that I never thought I was good at. And then, bam, I actually enjoy this, and now you're on a ministry team, something like that. So, All right, thank you, sir. The next one is um, <clears throat> the person confesses I allow uh, negativity in my life because it justifies the fact that I can fall. How do I battle the thoughts of negativity and lies that I believe, and can you break down what it looks like to renew the mind? So negative. So say what they said about negative. I justify negativity because what? They allow negativity Anonymous. in their life because it justifies the fact that they can fall. That they can or can't. Can. No T. Okay. C A N. Justify. So I allow negativity to justify that I can fall. Yes. Okay. So I get, and this this is just could be because I'm an idiot. Like my first my question back to that would be like, why do you want to justify that you can fall? I don't I don't know why that justification is there. So if, if, if it means what I think it means, I would, I would try to stop justifying that you can fall. The, the justification that we can fall is Jesus having to die on the cross for our sins. Mm -hmm. That's the justification because if we, if we could not fall, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. That means someone could have obeyed the law perfectly. So, so you don't have to justify that. That's just written. That's just that's Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I I'm, not, I don't, I, I, I'm sure I'm misunderstanding something, but I don't understand why you would justify that. But, you know, renewing your mind is what I, I joked earlier about repetition is the father and mother of learning, right? Mm -hmm. Renewing your mind is very much practically reminding myself of the truths of God's word because we are, it's easy to forget. And this is why we read. One of the reasons why we do read is because we need that reminder. It's just we don't just get there's not a moment in a Christian's life where they just get it. I mean, you can ask anyone in this room who's been a Christian for decades. You don't just get it. Like, you just, you know what you do? You keep getting it. Right. That's what it is. Right. There's no moment like you've arrived, like, dang, I'm, 
But I don't got I don't got to pray. I don't got to read. I, you when you you get dead when we get dead. That's when we that's when you get dead. Until then, it, until then, it's always it's always a process. Like you don't just get to a point where it's like I got it. So you know, I would say renewing your mind practically. It looks like reminding myself of truths and then in faith acting as if it's true. That's what we do. So like when we live on earth as, as it is in heaven, we listen, whenever you resist sin, you're living like the resisting of sin and what God said is more true than the pleasure of sin. And that's why it pleases God when people have faith. That's why God told Thomas when he said, put your fingers in my hand. He said, and Thomas did it, he said, my Lord and my God. He was like, you, you, you believe because you see me. Blessed are those who do not see me and believe. He's talking about us. Because we can't say, well, Lord, show me your fingers and all that. So I know we're not saying that. We believe because they said it was true. And we have, we have credibility based on the Bible and the history of the church and things like that. Like, we don't get the luxury of seeing these things in the Lord. So we renew our minds by one meditating on truths of God, and then we act in accordance with those things that are true because God said them. And it's a process. So I, I, would, I would start small. Think of something that, if there's something you're struggling with or a promise to believe, go after it. Like, don't, I remember this old theologian, he was actually a personal friend of mine named Jerry Bridges. He used to say, he used to say, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of that. He said he would preach the gospel to himself every day, a couple times a day, just reminding himself of that truth. And I think in this day and age, I think that's really important to do now. We need to remind ourselves of who God says we are, and we renew our minds by thinking about these, these actual promises. These were, And some of them we memorize, we meditate on, and then we live as if they're true. Listen, all of us have been... I'm not saying this because of the recent events at all, what I'm about to say. I'm not trying to, but I've been pulled over by police who have not been kind or gentle, and I've been angry at the way they're talking to me because it's not even that serious. You said I, my taillight is out. What crime is that? And this dude is talking to me, and then someone else comes on the other side, and there's this kind of cocky, confident, and I'm not saying all of them are like that. We, I have friends of the cop. We got members of the church. But there are sometimes they just come off like that. Don't think for a moment. I'm not sitting there like, man, who are you? What you? But you know what, though? Officer, what do you need? Yeah. <laughs> Smiling. Because if, you, if, you, if, if, if I become a statistic, your body cam is going to show I ain't deserve it. Ten and two. What do you need, officer? Okay, I'm going to reach into the glove box. Remember, I'm practicing Smiling. I don't get into back and forth with the police, but, but you know what, though? Inside, I'm like, man, you're going to stop chumping me. I don't care if you... That, we all practice in some measure. If you got small children and they just knocked over something and it spilled everywhere and you just like, man. <laughs> and it wasn't sinful that they did it, but man, it feels sinful. <laughs> and you just enabling, like, and they just, you know, mommy and it's like, it's okay. I'm going to teach you how to clean up now. You know, we all have had to act opposite of how we feel. If it's on your job and your boss has just said something to you, embarrasses you in front of all your coworkers, you don't just be like, who are you talking to like that? They'll be like, you know who you talking to? Human resources. Bye. 
right? There's a couple of people in here got fired like that. Look, they don't, you don't do that, right? There's a, you know how to be a certain way. You know how to act opposite of how you feel. Don't think it's any different when it comes to spiritual disciplines. We know how to act opposite of how we feel if we have to. We just don't want to sometimes, and that's because we feel obligated, we feel hurt, we feel like, man, this person, we, no, we all know how to do that. It's possible to do that. I would say, you know, find some, some truths and hold on to those and then act in faith of those, even if it's opposite of how you feel. It is not fake to do that. It is 100% reality. And I think God is pleased with that. You know why? Because he, he, that's, that, that means I believe that he exists and that he rewards those who, who seek him. Because I'm not doing it because I feel like it. So anyway, more could be said on that book. So this last question, and this is the last question, it, uh, it says, if you die spiritually, does the Holy Spirit leave you? If you die spiritually, mm-hmm. does the Holy Spirit leave you? So that's, that's, there's a couple different theological ways to go about that. Um, to make it simple, I'll just say, no one who believes in Jesus Christ is going to die spiritually. And by that, what I mean is, and this is where we get into a little bit of the- theological, the deep end of the theological pool. So God knows who's saved. We don't. We have confidence and we live by faith that we're saved and we have confidence that other people are saved. But ultimately, we don't know who is really saved. Only God knows. And so the people that we think are saved sometime that, and I I hate to keep using him. I'm only using his name only because it was, it just called everyone off guard, like a Ravi Zacharias. I don't know if he's, I don't know where he's at eternally, right? But a lot of us had a different opinion of him and confidence in his ministry before all this came out after he died, right? We don't know these things about people. We don't know what's going on. So God knows, and God knows those who genuinely believe in him, who he's called to believe in him, are going to persevere to the end. We don't know that. So we see people and think, okay, yeah, that was, that was this person doesn't believe that, but based on what we see, then they fall away, and we're like, what in the world? You know, and, and, and John and Peter both in different ways say, look, if they, if they Peter, first John says this, for chapter two, if they go out from us, and they were never with us in the first place. But there is a prodigal son kind of also area too. So there are some people that come back. We don't know if they never come back, and they were never with God in the first place. People who are genuine believers are going to persevere to the end. Because God has guaranteed that. You look at first, you know, Thessalonians 5, you know, the last couple of verses, 23 and 24. People are going to persevere to the end. So if you die spiritually, well, you, does that mean you die with the Holy Spirit? People who die spiritually aren't genuinely believers from a biblical standpoint. The challenge is for us, we just, we, we can only go by what we know and what we see. So we see people and we think, oh, man, this person's, and then. We see people walk away from the faith and then we're confused about faith. And it's like, you know what? The best thing all of us can do is just keep pressing in, keep pressing in, keep persevering. And I, I, I even pray still to this day, Lord, please help me to persevere to the end. Keep me to the end. Because what would it, I mean, what would it benefit? Listen, I'm listen, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that there are people in this church and people across the country 
who feel like they like hearing me teach and all of that stuff. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that I have a church that tells, that encourages me from time to time and they benefit. I'm grateful for all of that. But at the end of the day, if I were to fall away, do you know all of that means nothing? I don't, that, 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 that doesn't mean anything. That's why I'm never impressed with all of that stuff, because it doesn't mean anything. Because there are people who are far greater teachers than me and have had greater impact that have fallen away. I care more about that than anything else. If, I, if the Lord says your pastorship is up, take it. I'm good. I just want to make it to the end. All the other stuff is, is going to be what it is. And I think if just, just have that mentality to the end, to the end. I want to be like Paul in 2 Timothy 4. I fought the good fight. When I'm getting ready to die, whether it's I know it, whether it's a process, or I, I fought the good fight. And that doesn't mean I was always good in the fight. It just means I fought the good fight, the better fight, the believing in Jesus fight. I want that when I die. There are going to be plenty of things you can say, oh, he said this and did this. Those things, everyone's going to have that. But I want to say I fought the good fight. I still believe. And let me tell you why this is important. You look at Hebrews 11. Let me encourage you. Go to Hebrews 11. I said this to someone else a couple months ago. Look at all those stories in Hebrews 11. And ask yourself, what in the world is Samson in the hall of faith for? What in the world? You know why Samson's in the hall of faith? Because he was one person out of most of those stories who had absolutely no business having confidence in God. He was humbled. He was taken prisoner. His eyes were gouged out. I mean, for all intent purposes, Samson thought the Lord doesn't love me, doesn't care about me, is done with me. I'm a slave to the Philistines. There's nothing. And you know what he says? I'm going to still trust and believe enough that I'm going to cry out to him. And so he prays to the Lord, despite all the reasons why he shouldn't have, he cries out to the Lord and the Lord hears his prayer and he has enough strength to kill more Philistines in that one moment than he did his whole life. And the Lord put him in the hall of faith, not because he was such a faithful believer, but because he had faith in the one who's faithful. And at the, when he took his last breath, it was in faith that God is. Listens. And acts. I mean, go to Hebrews 11 and, and let those stories help you grow in your faith. Some of the people, I'm like, man, Lord, if they were in our church, I'd be wondering what's up, you know? <laughs> and so it's just, it's just, it's just funny. It's just, it's just amazing how, how, how the Lord sees things versus how we see things. So obviously more could be said. And if you know me, get to me privately. We can talk a little bit more on a, on a personal level. So that's it. Always a privilege to be with you all, to preach in front of you all. Thanks for your participation. And if you are a member of the church, don't forget, we got D groups. I think we got co-ed groups this week. I think this is, I think this is co-ed uh, groups this week. So if you are a member, we will see you then. See you for just a few minutes logging in. Appreciate you. Grateful for you. Love you guys. Be safe. And, and, and remember that we're not obligated to live according to the temptations, even when they, they seem stronger than our ability. We can still resist because we are in Christ and he is in us. Amen? See you when I see you.